Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker. Nina Soto, and I'm the Literary Arts Windsor Treasurer. It is an absolute honor to welcome you here tonight to the 21st Bookfest Festival de Livre Windsor. Before we get started with today's program in the festival, it is important to us to share this land acknowledgement. Literary Arts Windsor acknowledges that our organization and the festival are based on the traditional territory of the Three Fires Confederacy of First Nation, which includes the Ojibwa, Odawa, and the Potawatomi. We respect the long-standing relationships with First Nations people in this place, in the 100-mile Windsor-Essex Peninsula and the Straits, Le Detroit of Detroit. We are so proud to have continued to bring this wonderful annual festival of literary arts to Windsor Essex, Windsor Essex County without interruption for over 20 years. We are together again in person to share a literary festival that presents an amazing and diverse group of, of authors. Our charitable organization, Literary Arts Windsor, particularly wants to recognize Canadian Heritage, Ontario Arts Council, Canada Council for the Arts, the and the University of Windsor for helping to make these events possible. Now, without further ado, I would now like to introduce you to our moderator for this event, one of Essex County's most precious gems, the glorious Gord Christenthwaite. I don't know about Jem so much, um, or Glorious for that matter. Um, I'm sure my wife would have some things to say to that. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. This is an incredible group of writers. Count you all among, among the best of us. Uh, we, have, we have Joseph Kekwino Kamsam. Is that close? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay, if I got it wrong, don't, don't hesitate to stand me out who's a member of the James Smith Cree Nation. He grew up in the Peace Region of North, Northern BC, the sixth of seven children, raised by a single mom. In the early years of his, this century, he started writing a, as a catharsis, and it soon became a routine of self-care or mental wellness. He was awarded a creation grant for Ab Aboriginal peoples, writers and storytellers in 2014 by the Canada Council for the Arts. Bravo, not the easiest thing in the world to do. Um, in 2019, he received his Creative Writing Certificate from the Writer's Studio at Simon Fraser University. The following year, he received an honorable mention in the Humber Literary Review and was shortlisted for the CBC Short Story Contest. That's brilliant. His essay, Writing in the Eye of the Storm, was published in the anthology Resonance, Essays on, on the Craft and Life of Writing in 2022. The same year, he was selected by Daryl J. McLeod as one of the Writer's Trust uh, of Canada's rising stars. He lives and writes on Victoria Island. I'm austere, things you see here in Sukia, yeah? yeah. so just from Victoria. And next, uh, we have our 
you're still poet laureate, yeah, yeah, for another year. Okay, so we have um, Louise Bernie's half, Sky Dancer, was raised in Settle Creek, Settle Lake Reserve, and attended Blue Quills Residential School. Her first book, Bare Bones and Feathers, received the 1996 Milton Acorn People's Poetry Award and was a finalist for the Spirit of Saskatchewan Award, the Pat Lowther Award, and the Gerald Lampert Award. Blue Merrill was a finalist for the 1998 Governor General's Award for Poetry, the Crooked Good won the first People's Publishing Award and the Saskatoon Book Award in 2008 and was shortlisted for the Pat Lowther Award. Her fourth book, Burning in This Midnight, it was Burning in This Midnight Dream. That's, that's what you read from, which is absolutely beautiful and tough to read. Um, In 2018, as part of the Laurier Poetry Series, her previously published works were compiled. The Poetry of Sky Dancer Louise Bernice Half, edited by David Gertner. Half was Saskatchewan's Poet Laureate for 2005-2006, was awarded the Latner Writers' Trust Award for her body of work in 2017, and was awarded the 2020 Kloppenberg Award. And next, and this is, so Carol Rose Golden Eagle is Korean Diné, with roots in Sandy Bay in northern Saskatchewan, Carol is the author of the award-winning novel, Bearskin Diary. It was chosen as the National Aboriginal Literature title for 2017. The book was also shortlisted for three Saskatchewan Book Awards and the French language translation, Podors. What is Saskatchewan Book Award? That's pronounced, that's French pronounced the Windsor way. Yeah. <laughs> Podors. Uh, won a Saskatchewan Book Award in 2019, Herith. Carol's first book of poetry was shortlisted for the Saskatchewan Book Award in 2019. Her second novel, Bone Black, was released in the fall of 2019. Carol's most recent novel, The Narrow of Fears, Koshik. Well, it's okay. Narrow okay. Fears. <laughs> it's mm. fine. It was published in October 2020. I'd like to get it right. Um, Try and wrap my tongue around the around machine. Uh, essential Ingredients is Carol's second book of poetry, and I think you'll be reading from that tonight, yeah. And Tyler Pennick is a two-spirited adoptee from the Cree Métis family around Lesser Slave Lake, region of Alberta. And you're all from the north. Their first book, Bones, Brick Books 2020, was shortlisted for the Gerald Lambert Memorial Award and the Indigenous Voices Poetry Award. Tyler graduated from Guelph University's Creative Writing MFA program in 2013 and currently lives in Toronto. So, did you study with Thomas King? Or was no, he already gone? No, I just missed him. Oh. Um, he was, I wanted him to be my mentor, but the director of the program actually got him to agree to have coffee with me one afternoon. He's a very cool, very large, but very cool and very funny man. Yeah, and says he can't play basketball. He was, yeah. With all was, that height. <laughs> and he was about to bite into a big piece of carrot cake, and he's like, this is why I have this, with his, with his um, insulin needle. Mm -hmm. It's like, like it was nothing. So, trauma is the common thread I saw in all of your work. And so, the only real question I have for the whole panel is, trauma, tell me more. But before I get to that, um, I have a couple of questions for Joseph regarding Indians, My Indian Summer, um, which is a brilliant novel. The titles are all... Names of songs. Yes. Chapters. The chapters. The chapters are all uh, all, all named after some of these songs. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. We titled all the uh, all the uh, chapters uh, from the songs from the seventies. 
I thought it was appropriate because music was such a, a saving grace for, I think, all of us in, in my family. Um, all very musical people, but uh, being the, uh, you know, number six of seven, I got to listen to my mom's music, my brother's and sister's music, and they were all listening to such a, a wide range of different kinds of music. So I thought I would honor that because um, music was, you know, was, it, it helped pass the time and get through it. And were those songs part of the playlist when you put the novel together? Uh, it wasn't actually part of the original plan. Um, the original plan was to name it after, because uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the book, there's a Stephen King novel called Night Shift, and we were going to name the title, the, the title of the, uh, the chapters after, after the, uh, the, the short stories that Stephen King had wrote, uh, but then, you know, we couldn't get the permission, so. Mm. So they were just story titles. Yeah, we didn't want to ruffle any feathers, mm. didn't want to take that. any chances, so, so we just went with the songs, and I thought it was a, a better choice in the end, because, uh, like I said, it was, music is a very powerful an emotive tool, and and it, and it did, um, it's it, it really helped get through it, get through the mm -hmm. the mess. Yeah. So I'll extend this music question to each of you. Joseph's music uh, is is seventies pop. Yeah. Mine was uh, hard rock, metal, and punk. Country music. Country? Oh, yeah. And Ukrainian yeah. music. I grew up with country music and Ukrainian music. Ah. So, hope does. You're cheating hard. <laughs> oh, come on, you. Uh, no. Hank Snow. Yeah. Hank Snow. Yeah. Loretta Lynn. What's that? Loretta Lynn. Loretta yeah. Tell me when that. Yeah. But, the, you know, the older folks, like the really old country music, I'm older than all of you, so it's, <laughs> I'm going back in time here. Yeah. <clears throat> but you know, when I was in residential school, we didn't have music. In fact, the very first time I saw a television, I thought, how did those people get in that box? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I used to think that about the radio. I'd be sitting there listening to the Bay City Rollers and wondering why can't I see them inside the radio? Mm. Yeah. You're just looking at the wrong spot. Oh, yeah, I was. Yeah. When you hold so, you wondered how the people got inside the TV the first time you saw it. So, how old were you the first time you saw TV? Or, like, roughly? Uh, six and a half, probably. Oh, okay. Yeah. We didn't have electricity when I was growing up. I just want to say hello to the audience first before oh, we yeah. begin. You know, so now I got you a bit of good day, and to ya and Skagis got metal and me waiting, and a pemitetic. Now it's Kisakamakani, me toxin and cigars on Unijas Kapune Hotse. I thank you for attending tonight to come and listen to us. I'm Cree from the South Lake Indian Reserve, and my name is uh, loosely translated into English as Sky Dancer. So it's a pleasure to be here with the rest of the writers and yourself. And so, super. Thank you. Super duper. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. yeah. I love world music. Yeah. yeah. I just listen to CKUA radio all the time. It's an Alberta radio station, FM, 
So, uh, yeah, you can get the best world music ever on CKUA. You will never get bored with their genres of music. And um, while I, I adore 70s music, and some of the old country music is awesome. I uh, never did like metal. But, you know, that's my choice of what I love in terms of listening to music. And I also, I love Yo-Yo Ma. I just bought a cello. <laughs> so, yeah, he's got a CD where he does a lot of uh, Bach. Anyways, I love that CD. Oh, I uh, released in 2002, I think. Um, what music don't I love? Uh, favorite band is Pink Floyd, though. Is who? Um, Pink Floyd. Oh, okay. Uh, my uncle got me into that. And I, genre-wise, would be drum and bass, mm. which is different, I know, but well, that's I was a kid in the '90s. <laughs> right. We were we were high and partying all the time, you know. Okay, so back to my initial question statement: trauma. If you had to select one poem from any of the material brought tonight to read that exemplifies how you deal with trauma. And, and you can go on and explain how or why. I'm going to leave that entirely up to you. Because I think, I think in Indian country, there is a kind of a baseline for, for trauma. But each person's experience is, is different despite, despite um, a general source. So you have your book open. Tyler, how about we start with you? Or you start? <laughs> uh, oddly, I'm not going to read from blood for this. I'm going to read from bones. The body is a collection of continuously dying cells, destroying to repair. Memory held not through physical means, but electrical impulses, moving beyond flesh, like a force of dying suns crushed, a black soul only trace being the ghost it sends out perpendicular to the stars it killed. If the body is a collection of continuously dying cells, then I am memory, each destruction of me refolded into me, more than scars bursting pain and harm, memory passed to new, stronger cells, a reprint, each armed with knowing and stronger than the last. Uh, usually I do answer with poems, because like, why not? Um, the idea of bones came to me after, after I attended a reading at Glad Day Bookshop, and someone had, had spoke about um, uh, living in Toronto in the 97, 98, 99, and she was a bartender at uh, Buddies and Bad Times Theatre, and she just made one quick mention of all the street urchins and sex workers, particularly boys, because Boys Town was around there. And um, it just got like got me going, and so I, I wrote the poem Bones, um, We Are Bones in the Mud of Dying Swamps. Um, and then this poem came shortly after that. So the idea of bones being something that is not rigid because of the flesh and area that it inhabits and just even the idea of as we know uh, even rock um, being something that is fluid and cyclical right and circular in its in the way it moves um, was something i was 
sort of fascinated with when I wrote it. Bones. Okay. I guess I'll go. I'm going to sing because what I have been writing about, I write about all sorts of things, but one of the things is uh, our Indigenous women are amazing. We're beautiful. We're strong. We're resilient. We are leaders. We are awesome. And one of my favorite people sitting, you remind me so much of my big sister, is sitting right beside me. And so I will sing a song to honor women, and then I will tell you about the type of poetry I've been doing. I'll just do one round of this. I was given the gift of drumming and singing by some amazing elders who are women in Alberta and uh, I was taught how to make a drum by this wonderful elder in Manitoba who is a woman and I thought you know what it brings me such joy that to tell me I'm not allowed to sound one or develop one of the gifts I've been given by Creator which is to sing because I love to do that then you're not allowed to tell me how to be creative. So I continue to sing and drum, mostly because I want our particularly young Indigenous women to say, you know what, I'm awesome, I'm strong, I'm capable, and I'm here to take over. So you guys watch out, don't you dare tell me I can't do something, because I'm one. So anyway, <laughs> there we go. So that's I mean, I just, I love to sing and drum, but that's one of the, the reasons. And so I will read, actually, uh, a poem called Fire, which is in my manuscript called Stations of the Crossed, which should be on the market now, but they had a printing delay, so it'll be out later this month. But within that, obviously, I talk about, uh, I was outraged when I realize how much pain I was carrying around, how much pain all of us have been as a result of residential school, as a result of the scoop up and the child welfare system, as a result of Canadian government policy, which is not that old in terms of finally having it changed. I can't believe it was about the 1970s when we were finally able to leave our First Nations communities 
Before then, you needed to have a government issue pass, just like in South Africa. In fact, they modeled their system on ours. So there are just all sorts of things about uh, Canadian history, but mostly, I really, our women, we have to just come out swinging now because the time for us to shine is now. And I was talking to Joseph, I said, you know, I was taking a look at the teachings of the Catholic Church, which I had to endure as a kid, forced into it, um, taking a look at the stories in the Bible. Women are basically absent from those stories unless somehow they are a slave or a prostitute or someone downtrodden and terrible. And you know, the first woman we're introduced to in the Bible is the reason there's sin in the world. Why is it that the story of Adam and Eve has Adam as the sinister one who introduced sin in the world? So that's the gist of Stations of the Cross. And so this is, uh, I need glasses. This is a uh, poem called Fire, Iskoti. Iskoteo is how we say it in Cree, the word for fire. It is what fuels us, what sustains us, keeps us alive, keeps us warm, enables us to cook our food, feed our families, tell stories around the fire, celebrate life, fire. It comes from a sacred place. Iskoteo, meaning woman. Oti, meaning heart. Our home fires, are the heart of woman, a place where we build family, friendship, community, all that is real. And damn you, Catholic Church, for calling my language pagan and slapping my ancestors for speaking truth, even putting pins in their tongues for speaking Cree. You are the fucking savages, you black-robed nuns and priests and social workers. You did your best to silence us. But Creator knows, not the God that you forced us to bow to in front of your church. So we continue with fire. Woman has kept it alive. The heart of woman. The heart of all that is good. The heart of humanity is woman. Even Jesus would rejoice in that the fire will burn forever within the heart of woman. And the children that we are blessed with, who carry on and build or rebuild, fire. The voice of woman was never silenced, never taken away. Woman, ours holds the spirit of generations. Fire, that is woman. And this is where we start again. It's the tale. Uh, the idea of trauma. Uh, I don't live in trauma. I'd, you know, I've done a lot of my own work uh, with a psychiatrist when I was in my 30s and a psychologist later on. And they became my lifelong friends until uh, the psychiatrist di died. And my psychologist is my best friend. She lives in a different province though. And so, but I would not been able to write any of the work that I do if I hadn't done my homework. Um, periodically, I'm still angry, and periodically, when I think about it, um, my parents were residential school survivors, as my whole family was. 
I get bitter. Personally, I don't like to stay there. I've got to keep moving on for the health and safety of my children and my grandchildren. Um, but my anger motivates me to write. They say the um, pen is mightier than the sword, right? So that's what I do. Um, I sing too, but I don't sing the beautiful journey that you just demonstrated. I sing ceremonial songs, and I don't do that in public. So, But uh, let's see. I'll, I'll, I'll read this to you. And, and, and one of the things that I struggle with, I'm married, been 48 years that I've been with my partner. He's a white man. And um, I've got him Cree mated. <laughs> So we've been in this uh, cross-cultural relationship for 48 years where he's followed me around with a ceremony and I have followed him around in his culture show. So I'm very comfortable work walking in both worlds because I speak my language and um, I participate in ceremonies, I do ceremonies and I, white, I, work, in a, and I work in a white world. Sometimes I feel white out. And so I work at the schizophrenic life and try to balance it. Um, so, but he's a, a beautiful man, my partner. I've taught him how to speak Cree. And my children are very successful with what they've done with their careers. And I, I'm gonna brag a little bit, okay? My eldest son is a physician. They fly him up to Northern Ontario to uh, service the Northern communities. My daughter is a PhD professor at Carleton. My first grandson is a second uh, year uh, anesthesia. And my other grandson is a computer whiz. And my six-year-old is gonna be the next prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I wrote this and I want to s explain it a little bit because um, one of the things that I have come across throughout my marriage is, and I, and I don't want to sound racist, but it may sound racist, is white woman coming on to my husband constantly in front of me. And I have written, and I don't know how to write this yet because um, they're, they're so, uh, in my face in front of my husband and I. And it's like there's a total disregard to me as a woman because I'm a native woman. And um, they don't realize that's what they're doing. And I've had a few confrontation consequently because of that. And, I, it, and it's not that I'm possessive and jealous. It just pisses me off because they're trying to put me in my place, right? So. I, um, I want to write, uh, read this particular poem because um, it talks a little bit about that. Gagwetamuin, which means jealousy. Gagwetamuin. When a Cree word ends with wind, it means energy. Wagutwin means relationship comes with energy. Sagi twin, love is filled with energy. All these words that end with wind in my language come with energy. 
And um, of course, you know, you know a little bit of um, um, the things that we are come from stardust. That's what our body is made of. And there is energy in stardust. When he first took me to his home, it was clear I was from the wrong side of the creek. A blonde arrived at his door four nights after my brother took his last breath and my newborn and I had flown home to be at my brother's wake. When he went to university, he spoke another upon his lips, a milk-skinned woman who had the language he understood while my tongue tripped on the accent of my Cree. For years, I raged when I saw him in the company of other women business-suited women striding in high heels while I stayed home, my high school transcripts hidden in the babies attached to my breasts. I, I thank you for listening. Okay, Joseph, can you read something that isn't going to prove spoiler? I, I can, I can, I'll read the, um, the, the prologue. Uh, it's about five minutes, so it won't be too painful. Uh, it's called Love Will Keep Us Together by Captain Antoniel. Hunter woke to Aunt Myrtle's nudging. Baby boy, she said. Her hand was warm, pressed against his cheek. Wake up, sweetheart. Hunter rubbed his eyes. What? He yawned. You're going on an adventure with Mama. Her smile was relaxed, rehearsed. She patted his leg, a stump, as quick as you can. Myrtle turned on his bedside lamp and gathered a few pairs of socks and underwear, two of his favorite shirts and a pair of pants, stuffing them into a black plastic garbage bag. Dress warm. I'll go get your toothbrush and tell mom you're almost ready. Hunter dressed and yawned again as he exited the room, still rubbing his sleep from his eyes. He shuffled into the dining room where Deb and Noah sat at the table, school bags in hand, and worry marks furrowed between their brows. Their skin was pale. Hunter's heart jumped into his throat, and he stood wide-eyed, completely awake at the sight of his frightened siblings. He didn't think he'd like this adventure. Margaret walked into the dining room with short, quick steps, Myrtle following close behind. Margaret turned and whispered in her sister's ear. Babe, why? Myrtle said softly to Hunter. Grab my purse, she said, pointing with her chin to the living room. Hunter fetched the purse and handed it to his aunt. Myrtle pulled all the money she had from her wallet. Where will you go? She asked Margaret. Myrtle's eyes shone, and when she blinked, tears fell down her round cheeks along the crease up the top of her lip into the corners of her mouth, and she wiped her eyes. Wherever it is, I'll call you when I get there. Margaret kissed her head. I promise. They hugged. No more white men taking our children away. Myrtle sobbed into the shoulder of her older sister. Sad tears, but necessary tears. They separated to each other. They'll have to kill me first, said Margaret. Hunter sat in the back of the old four-door Pontiac with Deb. She stared out into the darkness, mute, 
her breath fogged the window. Hunter reached across the bench seat to press a hand upon her arm. Deb was five years older. She turned to face him. He leaned over and whispered, What's going on? Where are we going? Deb leaned her head towards her little brother and whispered, Dad's trying to take us. Take us where? Deb whispered. He wants me and Noah to live with him. She straightened, leaned her head on the window, and stared out into the blackness. Hunter didn't know his father. He'd left six years ago when he was only three. He knew he looked like his dad. His mom had told him so. Hunter also knew that his aunties and uncles had nothing good to say about Bill Frank. Doesn't he want me? Deb didn't answer. Before Margaret told her to get up and pack, Deb had heard her mother and Aunt Myrtle talking. George says Bill's bragging about how he's planning taking the kids while you're away at work, said Myrtle. No fucking way is that animal going to take my kids, Margaret hissed. He only wants to take Noah and Deb, says Hunter's not his. Noah sat in the tall in the in sat tall in the front passenger seat, scrutinized the map sprawled over his thin lap, a flashlight in his right hand. Where are we going, Mum? Noah looked at Margaret, who was waving to her sister, standing at the front of the porch. As far away as we can get from this place, my boy. She looked at Noah. We gotta go before the social workers come. She checked her left shoulder, signaled onto Highway 2, and headed northwest out of Edmonton. Yeah, um, one of the things, one of the ways we deal with with the bad stuff is is through laughter. It it seems like in the kind of work I've done, um, if if I don't laugh, I'm going to die um, or kill somebody. Maybe both. I don't know. But but um, I I can laugh. Um, I mean, when I worked on the crisis line, um, I learned to laugh at, at what I was dealing with in order to survive, um, get by, thrive. Now, some of your work is, there's some funny bits in, um, in, in your novel, um, Awasis. Um, there are places where I laughed out loud. Why don't you tell us how laughter has helped and then read, read a few minutes um, something that will bring a chuckle, even if it's naughty. We'll start with, with you, Louise. Well, as I told you, Oasis means little child or the spirit you were alone with. Now, most of us, well, all of us actually here have a child within, right? We learn about that. And that child gets suppressed because we're supposed to be adults. So when I was writing this book, I asked both the Native public and the white public, what was the funniest thing that ever happened to you that you wouldn't share with anybody? Well, the Crees had no problem telling me all their funny stories, and but the whites had the stiff upper lip, and I thought, come on, you folks, the, like, 
hasn't any, like haven't you ever walk, walked into a, um, a pole or a window, you know? That's funny. But um, so I created this Oasis to deliver these stories because everybody wanted to keep their, their story anonymous. They didn't want to be named. So it was, and also the other thing I need you to understand is in my language, we don't have gender specific pronouns. We don't have they, he, she, you know. It, in fact, inu, nehiosko inu means, inu means being, a state of being, as in mindfulness, as a people. That's what that word means. So that's how we relate to each other. So, um, so Was is going, to, is going to deliver you a few poems here. I'll, I'll read to you just for the hell of it. Okay. Always falling in. Was has carried 100 pounds across mud, marsh, hills to the other side of the portage. After unloading, sweating, and panting, she bent to splash water on her face and fell in head first. She stood up laughing, looked around to see if her companions were watching. Later, squatting on a wet slanted rock washing dishes, she slowly slid into the lake. On the final portage, when she and little white man set the canoe down, grunting, she toppled in. In a flat voice, little white man told her, those stunts are hard on the canoe. From then on, at all the lakes and rivers, her other traveling companions hung onto her pant loops. <laughs> this one is called Tenting. Awasa snuggled with little white men in the darkness of their tent. She was horny. So she laddered, laddered her emiguan, her drinking spoon, Little white man had a sniff and asked why the oil had a funny smell. When Oasis brought it up to her nose, she discovered it was clear cedar shampoo. Little white man laughed and laughed, said he would have come up blowing bubbles. There. Oh boy, I love it. You gotta come up north sometime with me Sandy Bay or have Pelican or anywhere along the Churchill River. I, I can go if you want. All right, so a lot of stuff that I write, whether novels or poetry, is pretty heavy, like what I just read to you earlier. And uh, this is uh, my first book of poetry is about the scoop up. Again, heavy. Um, the book I really love because you cannot stay in that heavy, sad place all the time. So I'll balance out my writing with light and love. And this one is love letters to my children in the form of poetry. It's basically stories, uh, free verse poems, just my memories of how wonderful my life has been as a result of having them in it. So that's that. But in terms of laughter, because that was Gord's... Uh... All right, I'm really lucky and I'm blessed to have just signed with the children's publisher in British Columbia. So, I wrote a manuscript of indigenous poetry specifically for children, all children, and I will read to you 
one of the poems, again, um, most of it's free verse and stories within the poetry, but, you know, it's going to be in school, so there's a couple of sonnets and limericks and different forms of poetry in there, too. This one is called Bingo Dapper. You know, Kokum is the word for grandmother in Cree. Kokum works hard every day, rarely doing things for herself. She collects sticks for the wood fire. She guts fish for the supper, sews clothing, bakes bannock and sweets. For her, it is a labor of love to make things easy for everybody else. But there is one thing that is just her own. Kokum loves playing bingo each Friday night. Like clockwork at 6 p.m., she ties on her babushka around her round, smiling face, and she goes off to the game. She brings her own bingo dabber, believes it will bring her good luck, reminding me of a maestro while she's marking her cards. Her arms fly so fast, dabbing ink on the paper, concentrating to make sure nothing is missed, reading glasses on her nose and delighting in this caper. Kokum comes home a winner. Twenty bucks goes into the jar. Still smiling, but the game's made her tired, so Kokum gets ready for bed. But come the middle of the night, she wakes up rubbing her shoulder because it hurts. She figures it happened because of bingo. She played so hard and so fast with bingo dabber stamping a dozen cards because everyone's already asleep now, though, Kokum does not turn on the light. Instead, she grabs that dabber of pain relief called Absorbean Junior, which sits on her bedside table. Sorbean Junior is what she calls it, and it helps her arthritis because her shoulder hurts after the game. She goes back to sleep, but in the morning she is surprised. There are little blue dots all over her arm from the bingo dabber that she grabbed by mistake. Just <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tyler Dusa. Yeah, do I write funny stuff? I don't know. Just generally pretty funny. Do you know how many ceremonies I've done? I'm, I'm not going to tell the ceremonies, but where there's all these people being like serious, dour. And I like to fire keep because you get to hear everyone. And so many of the elders are just like, <laughs> so I heard you went on a trip up north. And they're like, yeah. Did you go to the casino? Yeah. I put down tobacco to win something. And then they always win their gas money and stuff. And <laughs> it's always Kokums who win. Always. Always. Yeah. <clears throat> There's a, a story of the, the voice meets a photographer. And I wasn't really thinking about the fact that they're a photographer, but it kind of fits. Um, who just likes to name the poems. And as you know, there's no names in these poems. And likes to give them words that technically mean the same thing, but destroy the feeling of the poetry. So uh, I'm just going to read you one little bit from that and then continue on to another one. I think it's obvious that I can't shake the photographer's influence. I loathe the way he glances at these pages and names the images dispassionately, leeching the colors. Smug little pajak. Still fucking them, though. 
<laughs> you have a yellow fleck in your eye. Have you noticed that? You said that once. Lovers are easy to remember, and yet I only remember that about you. I could say there was a smell to you, or a feature for which you stood out to others. Maybe others gasped when you smiled, or your charm fumbled the hands of willful men. But time is an acrid smoke, and so much has passed between us. All I can remember, it was your voice. Except, I can't remember your voice. Just that it was your voice that put the yellow spot on a mirror around which this tired face grew. Why don't eyes wrinkle? Waking is difficult for me. Sharp memories rise quicker than my heart can modulate. I've traded my fear of false teeth for a fear of someone shattering my teeth. And do you still have yours? We've fallen from a world of grass and flower beds and nails into hot irons. Gleefully, they remake us into this skin, trying to cover injury and losing in the process. I wish I could remember features that made you such a landmark. That bright smile and a post-bar glow, an exceptional moment nested in a murk of short interactions. Maybe that was it. That you smiled at my imperfection without inhibition, and I'm fighting to figure out why. If I could pluck a moment from time's needle, I would sit and try, feel the reason for you or the coolness of your cheek on mine. But all I remember is what you said. You have a yellow fleck in your eye. A flickering yellow shard sitting underneath water, nestled in white. The softest flesh I have, still easily preferred, preserved, or both. And you noticed that imperfection. Come back to me, please, so I can point out yours. <laughs> I move. There are three people in this story, and they've gone out for a camping trip. Uh, kind of get away from the house. And, uh, it's from chapter 10. I called Mary Jane. Hunter stood up, his bones stiff, his muscles flaccid. He shivered as if to shake off a drug haze and scooted into the shadows of the bushes to take a piss. His shoes got soaked from the cold morning dew and a cloud of mosquitoes buzzed about for a free meal. He slapped at them and accidentally pissed on his shoes. Ah, for fuck's sakes, he complained, then zipped up his pants. On his way back to the fire, he swatted several blood-filled mosquitoes cursing the insect world. He started to pack the penny candies that he in a paper bag at the bottom of his bag. The boys stirred. Eric yawned, showing a pasty white tongue. His face puffed and pocked with red dots. I'm so thirsty I could drink my own pit, he said. Hunter looked down at his shoes. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the book strengths, is a relationship between Hunter and Jacob and, and uh, Eric. Yeah, um, it's, it's wonderful. Now, there isn't much sex in your novel. Um, I don't recall reading much about sex in, in your two books. There's lots. Okay. There's Good. Good. Because... Well, can I just add? Yep. So in my first novel, Bearskin Diary, uh, I, there was quite a bit of erotica in there because Indigenous women don't generally write erotica. 
so I wanted to challenge myself as a writer, but I also wanted to have it as sexy erotica because we are beautiful as Indigenous women. We are desirable as Indigenous women. We are sexy as Indigenous women. And that's why I wanted to do it. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. I agree, wholeheartedly. Um, now, there's a marked difference between the way Indigenous people approach the erotic and non-Indigenous. I'm going to say white folk um, because, well, white folk um, tend to have um, be tight assed about it, and 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 we can say things in mixed company, and sometimes even in front of the kids. That's that's not going to have anybody running for the hills or or their Bible or whatever. So this round. How about you read us something sexy? And if you give lessons, um, Carol, if, oh. if you give lessons, I, I'm going to sign up because um, ask my wife. I can't write erotica or shit. Yeah. Oh, well, the other thing, too, with the, the reason I wanted to put erotica in Bearskin Diary is because, because of how Canada and the church have affected our peoples, our indigenous peoples. Sex has always been something painful, and I wanted to show it as it should be, as something that's a blessed gift and something that we should all enjoy. I'm going to try and find, I don't know if I have something erotic in here. Yeah, see, this is my book of poetry. I didn't bring Bearskin Diary, but I think I'll just read you something called My Secret Hiding Spot, and that is no no <laughs> you guys have filthy minds <laughs> this is about a person who i was with for some time and and whenever i had a bad day let's say i i happened to be in the toronto airport and we've all had a bad time in the toronto airport and so to think of something good i would think of this person and if I needed to hide pain, I would think of this person. That was my secret hiding spot, was memories from, from that relationship. You are where I go when others, no longer able to hide the rot within that stench-ridden sack of despair they carry, need to unload some of it. Excrement of hate, fear, guilt. They throw at the world in general, but aiming with precision at me. The Teflon cloak I usually wear protects, but they are cunning, salivating, waiting in ambush for a button on that cloak to come undone. You are where I go, should some of it stick, the shadows disappear. You are where I go, when their harsh words leave a stain of self-doubt. You are where I go to wash it clean. You encourage me to unravel timid wings in flight towards your laughter. Destination safe. You are where I go. There's not a lot of sex in this book. Just so you know. <laughs> well, that's not bad. No. <laughs> no, it's not. Okay, how about you, Tyler? <laughs> uh, which one what? 
which sex poem? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Um, um, poetry is sex. I mean, isn't, isn't blood just one long sex poem? Blood is one long violent sex poem, yes. Someone, yeah. And you had none of these on your cheat sheet, did you? It's not on the cheat sheet because I, I often, apologize for that. You know what's awesome is how many high school students email me like, I love your, I love your book, I read it, it was amazing. And I was like, my parents wouldn't let me read that in grade 12. <laughs> but whatever. Your teacher's watching over your shoulder, you're fine. Not. Okay, a little bit of a funny one, and then whatever. Brick walls and a couch in the corner where a photographer sat and smiled to me weak while his girlfriend watched from the bar. I sat on the balcony with close friends aware that our return was anticipated by eyes eager to see how we moved in youth, whether we did it smoothly, strong and calculating, as solid as their imagining, or if we moved like water, flexible and insistent. Every night leaving, we passed a jar holding biscotti that no one bought and a sign that read, the bread that goes both ways. After sex, I think this one's about sex. After sex, the photographer's hand on my chest felt like, I was, like it was reaching inside me past every push my body could muster. Stillness, stillness my answer. And a hope that he could understand the language of small movements that only the world outside our tormentors can see. The ceiling rolled through lights that cars threw up while his Seiko echoed off the bedroom corner. A, a sympathetic language for the moment. Our pigeon for opposing worlds. On his, beds, his sh on his bed, his sheets tickling my foreskin already drying. I set out to remember every detail about this moment, except him. It's kind of mixed, eh? Darkness, sex, darkness. So, so read fast, eh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to argue about why people don't have, don't want to talk with, about sex. That's not true. Okay. Um, <laughs> there's all kinds of X-rated movies and Hollywood is totally sexual, only it's really perverted, I think, it's tits and ass and, you know, anyway, I could go on about it. Yes. Here's TP etiquette. Awasis was Cree-like with bannock buttocks, and when she, t she was tired, she became Wisakitsa, one eye asleep, the other watching. When her spoon tingled with pleasure, her right foot would stretch and splay like the Lita swan in, Fran in Florence. She used teepee etiquette until she found her voice. Then she'd arch snake-like and moose grunt, summoning, summoning her mate through thick lips. Thank you. The book has been described as a crossover uh, between yeah. And, um, and adults. Um, so, so when I wrote the book, I really wasn't thinking about sex. Um, but Hunter knocked on Deb's hollow wooden bedroom door. Anita, that friend, slumped open. Hunter hugged her for the $5 that she'd given him. She hugged him back, her breasts pressed against his face. He smiled. She smelled like wild roses. Suddenly, he felt an unfamiliar tingling. He looked up into her blue eyes and her long blonde hair shone. Thank you, he turned and ran. You're welcome, Anita called as Hunter rounded the corner past the kitchen heading for the front porch. Still tingling, he slung on his Kmart running shoes 
and gather the empty booze bottles from underneath the porch steps. About it. Yeah, Hunter is 12 years old. It's been great. Um, thanks for letting me hang with you. Uh, but back to your point, I think I think I could have been clearer. I think um, um, the sexualization of presented by by Hollywood and um, and internet porn um, is not a healthy representation of of. Of, of sex, it's not a healthy discussion of sex. It's not a healthy expression of sex. And, and I could have been clearer and, and presented it in that way because I think even the most tight-ass person might have a private folder of places they visit when they're alone. Um, but, but that's a discussion for, for I, guess, I guess, over a beer or a glass of wine. And uh, Tyler's giving me the, let's get the hell out of here. Look. No, I want to take a bite at that. Okay, okay, take a bite. Uh, I, I just find that, like, once uh, someone from France said Canadians are rather schizophrenic about alcohol because they talk about never drink alcohol, yet they wind up so wild when they do. And I think sex is the same thing. There's this attitude that you don't have a right to your own body, that your body is not sacred, that you don't have a right to experience and explore your body with someone that you trust. And so there's all this porn and all these TNA and all this other stuff, but it's bad, it's taboo, it's not allowed. And I do know from speaking with Billy and from speaking with um, Thompson that like Cree folks, it's sex. It's, we like to have fun, we like to have sex, we like to laugh. And there's, there is that difference around it. And I think, you know, if you tell an entire population of children to be quiet about sex, then you open up the world to darker things. Uh, yes, yeah. exactly. The native women are either, you know, asleep for all or anything that the, that crazy perception, you know. So it's it's interesting. Anyway, we could go on and on. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you all. Yes. Thank you very much, Gord, for doing such an excellent job and leading our panel and moderating our session for this evening. We would like to thank Louise Bernice, Half Sky Dancer. Joseph Kakwinokanasum, apologies if I have mispronounced it. Tyler Pennock, Carol Rose Golden Eagle, it is such a privilege to have you here with us today in, uh, and, and have your presence in Windsor. Many, many thanks for being in our midst today, for sharing your stories and your journeys with us. Can we please give them another round of applause? Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.